This is Wahid Jensen, and you are listening to Away Beyond the Rainbow. and welcome to a new episode of Away Beyond the Rainbow, this podcast series dedicated to Muslims experiencing same-sex attractions who want to live a life true to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Islam. I'm your host, Wahid Jensen, and joining me today uh, in this episode is my dear friend, Adam. Salam alaikum, Adam. Wa alaikum salam. How are you? I'm good, alhamdulillah. How are you? I'm good, alhamdulillah. I'm glad to be back. It's been so long since the last time I was on the show. Welcome back. Indeed, it's been a long time. As you guys remember, Adam joined me uh, back in season one when we talked about shame and vulnerability and self-compassion. And then back in season two, when we talked about hardships and trials and tribulations and attachments and surrender. And today he's going to be joining me in a four episode series on understanding and healing complex trauma. Adam and I have been doing this research for a while And we have kind of been reflecting on this, discussing things together, and we've had so many aha moments, so many things have resonated with us. Um, so yeah, just briefly, like, what do you think of everything that we have so far that we're going to be presenting in these episodes? I'm very passionate about this topic, uh, and I definitely benefited from the research and reading. Um, the book that we referenced, or one of the books we referenced, that I read about i don't know six seven months ago mm-hmm. and it, it was quite transformative subhanallah it, it helped fill in a lot of the blanks that i had and things i struggled to understand about myself so i'm, I'm really excited that the listeners will inshallah benefit and um relate to the content so i don't want to jump the gun and start saying too much <laughs> right. so right. yeah but inshallah um, it, uh, yeah i'm really excited for for everyone who's listening inshallah yeah definitely we're all excited to be sharing this content and um the way that we actually describe it is like imagine you're you have this puzzle set and you're filling all the pieces and then you're missing one piece and you can't really figure out the entire picture but once you find that piece and you put it in the entire picture just starts making sense like you get a feel of what the entire picture looks like yeah right and so this is basically the topic that we're presenting in these four episodes and our wish is that our parents our families our imams our communities would learn about this topic as it answers so many questions and it makes people realize so many things about themselves about their problems and so what we want to say at the beginning of this episode is that this uh, this series of episodes is not exclusive for men and women dealing with same-sex attractions this applies to everyone it's all across the board we see it all around us it applies to human beings in general regardless where we come from what we experience and so on if we look at complex trauma and we're going to be defining it in a little bit we see it all over When we look at people struggling with addiction, whether we're talking about substance abuse, if we're talking about pornography, sex addiction, gambling, etc., at least 
90% of people dealing with addiction struggle with complex trauma. If we dig deep, we will find that. And this is corroborated by research. People struggling with relationship problems or codependency, there is complex trauma. When we look at physical ailments, for example, a lot of the physical ailments manifest because of complex trauma. People who have self-esteem issues, people who have problems coping with stress, for example, dig deep and you'll find complex trauma. Exactly. If we look at mental health issues, now, of course, some mental health issues, they have a genetic component or organic brain component, and that's different. But many mental health issues actually can be traced back to complex trauma, like many mood disorders, psychosis, attention deficit disorder, or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder known as ADHD, some anxiety issues, conduct disorders, attachment disorders, particular phobias, even borderline personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorders, they can be traced back to complex trauma. So, as we said, uh, researching all of these topics and understanding, diving deep into complex trauma, learning more about it has opened our eyes to many truths that we did not really know before. And, you know, once you see all of these things, you can't really unsee them. And again, the sad truth is that once you realize all of these things, you start looking at life in a different way, but you see people who are struggling with this on a daily basis, not even realizing that they're dealing with that. Um it's like people are traumatized walking around not knowing why they are um, behaving the way that they're behaving thinking the way that they're thinking dealing with people the way that they're dealing with uh, people in their lives and unfortunately this becomes transmitted to future generations it's recycled from you know one generation into the other one um we propagate traumas without even realizing. What we hope is that these episodes will give you knowledge, inshallah, and the strength to realize that there is a chance to heal from all of these issues, inshallah. inshallah. And we invite everyone to open their minds and open their hearts. And obviously this material is going to be triggering. So uh, the material that we're going to be presenting in these four episodes is going to be opening old wounds. We're going to be looking back at our childhoods, at our adolescence, at our parents and caregivers givers our early experiences so many of you listening might actually be very emotionally triggered by this content so what we advise you to do is to take it slow if, if you feel like you're being triggered please consider this an intellectual exercise you don't need to process this at this moment no pressure for you to to do any kind of work uh, if you feel that this is too much please take a break from it you don't have to listen to it all at once listen to it in increments uh, please listen to it with your support system maybe your counselor your therapist your mentor your sponsor um, anyone who can help you through this if you feel that this is too much, if you are being triggered, if you are going into a depressive episode or even having suicidal ideations, please stop listening and consult with a professional. All right. So this is a trigger warning to everyone. However, this material is necessary. So uh, once you are able to deal with this uh, in a healthy way, we encourage you to um, listen to it and uh, process it inshallah when you are ready no pressure at all inshallah. and um yeah so um i will add the references that we have used in the research uh, for all of these episodes uh, we have used tim fletcher's series on complex trauma as well as the book running on empty overcome your childhood emotional neglect by jonas webb as well as dr nicole lipera's book how to do the work
I think a good place to start would be to begin defining what we mean by trauma. Uh, so trauma is an event that is distressing to the mind, perceived as dangerous and beyond our ability to handle, so that we're afraid of getting hurt, dying or going crazy. There are big T traumas associated with life-threatening and deeply disturbing events, so things like war, witnessing murder, rape, abuse, natural disasters, those types of things. And there are also small T traumas that cause distress, fear and a sense of helplessness. So these will be things like losing a job, having financial issues, divorce, lack of love, attention, physical touch, so those types of things. And trauma can also be classified as either being simple or complex. So he touched on complex trauma earlier. So if we start by defining simple trauma, uh, this results from a one-time event that takes place. So it could be a one-time abuse event, something that you experienced that was deeply uh, traumatizing. Um, and then it's usually associated with some form of PTSD or other trauma responses after the event. Complex trauma is the result of repeated instances or exposure to multiple forms of danger happening over a period of time. And this can be the big T or the little T traumas. So it doesn't really matter uh, between them. It, the difference here is that it takes place continuously over time. So a, a really common example from childhood is when a child doesn't feel safe, when they can't fully relax in their own home with their parents and siblings, when they feel all alone uh, in keeping themselves safe and handling the world. They walk on eggshells always on guard and they feel like they can't trust anyone but themselves. Mm -hmm. There doesn't have to be abuse or neglect, but even simple cues in the environment where children perhaps don't feel safe or have their needs met, uh, that can be enough if it happens consistently over a period of time to constitute uh, a complex trauma. And it's the job of caretakers to tune into the emotional reality of the children in their care so they, they can meet their emotional needs. So basically just for people to understand that by saying simple trauma, it's not simple in the sense that it is easy, but rather it just happens once, right? right? It's just one event and it can be very detrimental, but it just happens once you can trace it back to one event. It's done. It's over. Right. You deal with the trauma reactions and the PTSD, but the event itself is over versus complex trauma that actually takes place continuously. It's happening over a long period of time. Right. right. So this is what we're talking about. And then with big T versus little T. So big T are basically the life threatening major trauma. Like when we think about trauma, we think about war, abuse, natural disasters, murder. Small T traumas are things that cause fear distress a sense of helplessness that you know um adam said so there are di these are different ways of classifying traumas right yeah yeah I, I, absolutely it's important to make that dis uh, clarification because we're not belittling any type of experience they're just different um right but uh, yeah as, as we go on you, you will learn more about this mm -hmm. um so when we think about trauma trauma is partly connected to the actual events that take place and partly due to the way that it's perceived by the mind so the same event is perceived or can be perceived differently by different people. Mm -hmm. And children who are sensitive or extra sensitive, highly perceptive, can have a higher propensity to experience complex trauma because of the way that they are predisposed to just experience the world. Right. So it's important to understand that there are degrees of trauma. Um, and what we are learning is that the subtle forms of complex trauma can be just as damaging as the severe forms resulting from a one-time significant event. Mm -hmm. Um, so again, like we said before, there's this not competition um, as to who is more traumatized or what's more traumatizing. We're just simply saying that it, it, you know, the effects can be 
uh, just as severe. And the, the, the tragic thing with complex trauma is that it often results from things that become normalized in the environment of a child. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's very easy for those who experience it to be unaware that what happened or what was happening in their early years was wrong even to begin with. Right. Uh, so we'll come to that later. Um, but um, it's just, I, I just want to point that out at this point. Um, many people may never have considered the fact that they've experienced complex trauma. So very often those experiencing it um, consider their early life to be decent and normal, or the trauma was so common, it was their baseline normal. Uh, and most of the effects of this trauma happened at a subconscious level. And it requires uncovering for one to actually realize that it happened in the first place. So for some of us, uncovering this may start up old emotions and painful memories. So people you might have um, people might have flashbacks or experience panic or anxiety. And as you listen to this episode, don't feel pressured to process this alone or go off, go at it all at once. We all need support, and it may be that we need support going or hearing the content within this episode. So um, there, you shouldn't feel any uh, hesitancy or shame in, in reaching out. Or, or seeking that help from whoever you trust in, in your life. Um, and as Wahid said before, it might, it might be helpful just to consider this as an academic exercise to treat it as though you're just hearing useful or interesting information um, as opposed to internalizing it and processing it all on your, uh, on, on your own. Um, and all in all, for many of us, dealing with this has, has really transformed our lives. So I know we've touched on this, but I would say that um, as you said before, uh, that once you see this, you can't unsee it. And um, it, you, mm -hmm. um, once you've got the knowledge of how to deal with this, with, with complex trauma, uh, it can be incredibly transformative. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is literally life-changing. SubhanAllah. Yeah. yeah. SubhanAllah. Yeah. And others may realize that this, this type of topic involves a lot of work can be perceived as involving a lot of blame towards parents or caregivers, or that we're being disrespectful or disloyal for thinking about our families mm -hmm. in a particular way. That's not what we're trying to do. All that we're doing is trying to shed a light on these topics and practice uh, honesty and trying to see what shaped our lives and brought us to where we are today. Right. So we're not playing a blame game, mm -hmm. um, but rather we're hoping to get to a place of forgiveness and of letting go. Also, having complex trauma doesn't mean our childhood was miserable. We may have had a lovely childhood, but that doesn't mean that complex trauma wasn't there. Exactly. Because a lot of people tell you, well, I had the best childhood. Everything was fine. Well, yeah, that's that's completely fine. It doesn't mean that people don't experience complex trauma or if or the fact that you experience experienced complex trauma means that you had a miserable childhood. No, yeah. I mean, we can have beautiful childhoods, but in between there could be traumatizing events that we internalized subconsciously that we don't even realize. Um, yeah. So so everything is valid. Right. Yeah. So all, all what we're trying to do is just to kind of like invite you to open your minds and to entertain particular viewpoints that you may find to be relevant in your case, inshallah. So now we're going to be looking at the causes of complex trauma. So when we think about what are the potential causes 
uh, of trauma. So the first thing that comes to mind is abuse, right? This is the most obvious. So abuse, as we know, can be physical, it can be sexual, it can be verbal, it can be emotional, and so on. And it's very important to note that verbal and emotional abuse can actually be worse than physical abuse. Like being consistently called hurtful names, being put down, being made to feel less than, being constantly bashed, whether at home or at school. And this is taking place continuously over long periods of time. Research has shown that this is actually, this can actually be more detrimental than physical abuse. Not to say that physical abuse is any less traumatizing, but you know, if this is happening over a long period of time, the ripple effects on the aftermath is detrimental. Now, we know that sexual abuse is also very traumatizing and inshallah we will be discussing sexual abuse in two episodes uh, later on in the season. Um, abuse can also include being bullied at school, whether verbally or physically, right? Or by a person who is more powerful than the child, right? Or if the parent is a dictator parent, it's either my way or the highway. That's form of an abuse, right? Um, so notice here that when we're talking about abuse, this is taking action, this is taking place more than once over a long period of time. So bear this in mind because this falls under the definition of complex trauma, trauma that is happening over a long period of time. So that's as far as abuse is concerned. Yeah. And I guess the, the next, um, cause that we want to talk about with regards to complex trauma is neglect. And as we'll discover that, um, and in particular, emotional neglect, I will discover that it can actually do as much or more damage than uh, abuse. So we often use these terms interchangeably, but they, they are slightly different. So I think it'd be worth mm -hmm. uh, defining what we mean by neglect. So a, a good definition of neglect is to give little attention or respect to, to leave undone or unattended to, especially through carelessness. So in the context of emotions, um, pure emotional neglect is uh, invisible. So on outward, people who experience this um, seem to have come from ideal families quite often. And now that, that this is a recurring theme, and you'll, you'll see us talk about this uh, throughout this episode. On the outside, things seem okay. And even to the person who's experienced it, quite often they have no way of pinpointing an event uh, that uh, explains why they feel the way that they do. Um, there seems to be there's no signs of anything untoward um children who suffer from uh, emotional neglect may have had all their physical needs taken care of by their parents and caregivers but the parent uh, and caregiver and or caregivers fail to provide the child with the emotional nurturance and attunement needed for healthy development in relation to the self so what i mean by this is mm -hmm. um being emotionally unavailable parents who perhaps are workaholics uh parents who were dealing with mental illness uh, or chronic illness or other issues, uh, parents without the tools to meet needs of, of their children. Um, and as a result, children may begin to feel abandoned, rejected and unsafe in those environments. Emotional neglect typically takes place between the child and the primary caregiver. So mm -hmm. I say caregiver because everybody has different situations growing up. Um, and we can define emotional neglect as the failure of the primary caregiver to tune into the emotional needs of the child and also to meet those emotional needs. And there's so much to be said on the topic. But fundamentally, um, this type of neglect leaves children unable to understand their own emotional self, which is the foundation to well-being. Um, this can have as much, if not more, power over the shape of right. our futures than what we can recall. 
So if you think about it, childhood emotional neglect, it explains the consequences of what did not happen in childhood and how that might be an invisible driving force in, in someone's life. So adults who experience this um, can often feel frustrated with themselves. They can blame themselves for feeling as they do because there doesn't seem to be a very clear mm -hmm. and overt explanation for why they feel the way that they do. They feel that there's something not right, but they just cannot pinpoint what it is. And so these people will secretly, and often it is secretly, feel disconnected, unfulfilled, unhappy, and lacking in meaning caused by their early childhood experiences. Mm -hmm. And as I said before, they, they'll often remember their childhoods very fondly and parents who they perceived as being loving and well-meaning. And then as a result, they can often blame themselves for how they feel, not realizing that there was something at play that was invisible, um, fueling their disconnection from themselves. Uh, and these children will typically experience feeling like there's something wrong, but they can't quite place what it is. Right. Um, and as a result, they, they'll have low self-esteem, perfectionistic tendencies. Uh, they'll experience lots of shame and guilt. They'll have incredibly high expectations of themselves and a lot of self-directed anger and blame uh, when things don't go the way that they uh, want them to or expect. Right. And in, in her book on childhood emotional neglect, uh, Joni Webb offers the readers a questionnaire um, to give the readers some way of assessing if they've experienced childhood emotional neglect. Uh, and the book is very much about going through a process of discovering what it is, how it manifests, why it's there in the first place, and then offering some uh, some ways in how, how we can address it. In order to help the listeners try and uh, understand or, or maybe think about how this might apply to them, I've, I'm just going to run through that list that, that Joni offers in her book. And essentially, it's just a, a set of questions that ask you to think about your early experiences and perhaps even how you feel just now. So I'll run through this list um, and you can perhaps reflect on this. Do you sometimes feel like you don't belong when you're with your family or friends? Do you pride yourself on not relying upon others? Do you have difficulty asking for help? Or do, and do you have friends or family who complain that you are aloof or distant? Do you feel like you have not met your potential in life? And often, do you just want to be left alone? Do you secretly feel that you may be a fraud? Or, and do you tend to feel uncomfortable in social situations? Do you often feel disappointed with or angry at yourself? Do you judge yourself more harshly than you judge others? Do you compare yourself to others and often find yourself sadly lacking? And do you find it easier to love animals than people? Do you often feel irritable or unhappy for no apparent reason? Do you have trouble knowing what you're feeling? Do you have trouble identifying your strengths and weaknesses? Do you sometimes feel like you're on the outside looking in? Do you believe you're one of those people who could easily live as a hermit? Do you have trouble calming yourself? Do you feel there's something holding you back from being present in the moment? Do you feel at times empty inside? Do you secretly feel there's something wrong with you? Do you struggle with self-discipline? This is a, a big, big list. Um, bro, bro, <laughs> like while, while you were going through this, I'm like, I'm just ticking each and every one. 
<laughs> I'm like, honey, this just applies perfectly, subhanAllah. Yeah. yeah. This is how I felt when I read this book. And when I read the book, I did feel like, oh my God, I feel like someone has finally understood how I feel. Yeah, amen. And it was, it was quite elaborating to hear the list uh, in that way and be able to identify with it. And also be given the hope that there's actually uh, a, a solution to the way that we feel right. that is inexplicable so if you do feel and have identified with some of the things that i or if all of all of the things that i asked through that questionnaire then please do keep listening to the rest of these episodes because we've got so much to share and there is solution and there's there's help uh, on the other side of this yeah absolutely so we've we've talked about um abuse and we've talked about neglect as a cause of complex trauma and the next one uh, we want to talk about is abandonment so this can take place um, when there's some type of loss uh, or, or, or uh, a feeling of being left alone. So the examples of this would be uh, a death of a parent, a divorce of parents, uh, being placed in a foster care system, adoption. Uh, so in some significant way, essentially, the world has changed for a child and someone that the child has traditionally relied upon or uh, would rely upon is no longer there, which results in the trauma of abandonment. And this type of trauma can take place in what seem like stable childhoods, uh, but but childhoods that are constantly facing losses. So it doesn't have to be a one-time event, is what I'm saying. It could be consistent over a period of time where the child experiences perhaps the death of a pet, or uh, the loss of a family member, or perhaps they were moved schools repeatedly, or there's been some other financial impact at home, which has been things have had to change significantly. Basically, in an environment where there's a lot of insecurity uh, for a child, there's there's a lack of stability and consistency, which then results in uh, a lot of insecurity and fear, and a, a feeling of not being safe uh, for the child. Right. Absolutely. And if you want to think about it, like the common denominator to everything that we've been talking about is the idea that I'm not safe, that I'm walking on eggshells, right. that I'm not feeling comfortable. Right. And this is what complex trauma tells you, whether that's the case of with abuse or neglect or abandonment. It's the same thing eventually right. when it comes to like how we interpret that. I'm not safe. I'm not feeling OK. So um, other than all of that, other than abuse, uh, neglect and abandonment, there is this case where the, um, you know, the basic human needs that we have are not met. Either they are not met at all or they are inconsistently met, right? Um, in this case, this constitutes complex trauma, right? And we, we know that there are many human needs that have to be met for us to to be stable human beings, functional human beings, um, yeah, and just to be emotionally, mentally, and physically stable. So, of course, the basic needs include safety, food, shelter, including also emotional safety, right? But we also have needs to, to be respected and valued as human beings. So, whenever we are put down or whenever we are compared to other people like if only you were like so and so right this is very common in our muslim communities unfortunately right, right. and we are made to feel not good enough all of this makes us feel that we're not valued we're not respected for who we are this makes us feel that we're unsafe there's always this potential for me to get hurt right even if the other me needs are met right 
if this is not met, then we have a big problem, right? right? If I'm constantly being put down and not being valued for who I am, that's how shame develops. And that is going to lead to a myriad of problems. And we're going to be talking about this in detail, inshallah, right? So this is this is one thing to take into account. Another thing to take into account is the idea that I need to be accepted. I need to be validated for who I am, my basic personality, my sense of worthiness for, for being a human being, right? Um, to, to realize that I have limitations, I have strengths, and that's okay, right? We don't have to maintain an image. This is very important because my sense of worthiness is not external, it is internal. It, it comes from the fact that I have been created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who has breathed into me of his spirit. And that is my sense of worthiness. He has made me worthy, right, as a creature. Right. Um, but whenever we start comparing, whenever we don't accept uh, ourselves or, you know, our children, whenever our parents did not accept us, did not validate us, that is going to hurt us, right? When we are constantly criticized day in and day out, that is a big problem, right? Another issue is the issue of belonging. Exactly. Right? We all need to feel that we belong. We belong to a family. We belong to a community, right? Unfortunately, many of us felt that we're like the black sheep of the family. We were left out. We were always ostracized, criticized, felt that we were different, right? And that is another problem. Right. Um, another issue is that life has to, you know, we have to have this impression that life is fair and just. Right? Even though there are, there's injustice and atrocities happening all around the world, but there has to be this intrinsic feeling that I rest, that Allah is fair and just, that life at the end is, is okay right? That I'm not walking on eggshells and things are going to burst in my, in my face at different points in time, right? Now, contrast that with the double standards that happen at home, right? People are treated in different ways because of double standards that are set by parents or not holding rules. Whatever applies to X doesn't apply to Y, right? Parents being inconsistent in their treatment, parents being so moody that they sent mixed messages, right? to different children, and this made us feel unsafe, right? So this is very problematic, right? Mm. Um, another important human need is honesty and trust, right? That is basic. Right. We have to have that in our homes, right? If we can't trust people in our homes, be that our parents or siblings, then that is a big problem. Because what does the child feel? He or she feels unsafe. Again, this concept of safety. I'm walking on eggshells. I can't trust people. I can't open up. I can't be honest. And we start building walls as a result, right? Yeah. Another problem is intimacy and attachment. These are human needs. We have to, to have healthy intimacy with our parents, with our siblings, with our family members. We need to attach in healthy ways. And we'll talk about this later, inshallah. To, to be able to talk about feelings without being judged. I feel this way. Whatever the emotions are. We don't talk about positive or negative emotions. Emotions are just emotions. But whether we're happy or not happy, whether these emotions are difficult, to, to actually be able to talk about these things without being judged. right? Contrast that with home environments where just by opening up and talking about our emotions, we were judged and put down. We were made to feel stupid, weak, uh, less of a man, less of a woman, right? Again, I'm not safe in this home environment, right? right? I don't know when I will be criticized. 
so I might as well just shut up and not even open up anymore. Another important human need is to be nurtured, to learn, and to accept successes and failures, right? Meaning that we learn in pain and frustration. Things are not going to happen the way that we want them to happen, right? But we have to have people who guide us and show us that it's okay to fail, that you've done your best, we learn from our failures, and we appreciate the successes. Life's are, life is all about ups and downs, right? So when we are only expected to always succeed, we're going to be afraid of doing something wrong or failing or, for example, breaking something in the house by accident or even crying because this is a sign of weakness, mm-hmm. right? We, we have very high standards that are set for ourselves by our parents and eventually by ourselves because we learn that by conditioning and therefore we are afraid of getting punished, right? So, A stable home environment, a nurturing home environment, is where we learn from failure. We are not judged, we are not criticized, we are not punished for failure, right? Versus a home environment which which only accepts success. And anything short of success, whatever that subjective definition is, is going to be problematic, mm. right? And that is that sets us up for a, a, a whole list of problems that we are going to be talking about in detail, inshallah. Another important human need, which I've honestly, unfortunately, I've rarely seen in our communities, which is having consistent boundaries, right? And I can tell you that most of us struggle with setting boundaries, unfortunately, because of the early home environments that we have been exposed to, (laughs) right? (laughs) By boundaries, what do I mean? Rules constantly changing at home right? right. Uh, people overstepping particular boundaries, they're going into your private stuff. There is no sense of privacy. There is no sense of security, right? Uh, whether it's my private stuff, whether it's my emotions, right? People poking, even, even boundaries, a sense of respect, right? Mm-hmm. A sense of feeling that, okay, um, you know, we're not all enmeshed as one unit. We are all separate independent individuals some home environments it's like everyone is into everyone else's business right and sometimes unfortunately even boundaries have to apply to the body right this is this is taken for granted that my body is mine there this is a personal boundary there's hurma that's associated with that however in the case of sexual abuse for example boundaries to one's own body don't apply and that is a big problem right? Mm. So maintaining consistent boundaries is very important and nurturing children to build, to, to actually respect those boundaries and teach them to instill those boundaries with others in very respectful ways so that other people will respect them and know that they have boundaries. Unfortunately, a lot of us don't know how to do that. And one of the most important things, that's another point, is the is the topic of unconditional love. And boy, man, I don't know where to start with this one because subhanAllah. Um, yeah. Unconditional love, and this has to be stated time and time again. When I love you, I love you for who you are. You are intrinsically worthy. You don't have to do something or say something or prove something to be worthy of this love. If you make a mistake, or if you succeed, or if you choose a different path altogether, I will not love you any less. This is unconditional love, all right? If this does not apply to us, it is by definition conditional. 
Exactly. So if parents love their children only when they are successful, when they look a certain way, when they behave a certain way, when they follow the rules, etc., 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 but they don't love them otherwise, then that is by definition conditional love. Parents' love for their children has to be unconditional. And unfortunately, because we haven't been nurtured to, to, to experience that unconditional love, it becomes ingrained in us that if I want to be loved, if I want to be given attention, I have to prove something, I have to do something. Right. I become a human doing rather than a human being. Mm. I'm a human being. I am worthy just by being me. Again, I'm worthy just by being created by a creator who wanted me to exist, who breathed in me of his spirit and considered, and considered me worthy, right? This is unconditional love. So all of these needs that I've just listed, and there are others, obviously, when we realize all of this, we begin to see that many of us actually grew up in environments where we didn't genuinely feel safe, right? Again, the topic of safety. That I was walking on eggshells. I wasn't I wasn't safe being me, right? And that is complex trauma. And traumatic experiences aren't always obvious. Our perception of the trauma is just as valid as the trauma itself. Trauma occurred when we consistently betrayed ourselves for love, when we were consistently treated in a way that made us feel unworthy or unacceptable. And this separated us more and more from our authentic self. Trauma creates the fundamental belief that we must betray who we are in order to survive. Before we talk about this more, we have to mention one last thing for the sake of completion. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or the CDC, carried out what is known as the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, which revealed a stunning link between childhood trauma and the chronic diseases people develop as adults, as well as social and emotional problems. This includes heart disease, lung cancer, diabetes, and many autoimmune diseases, as well as depression, violence, being a victim of violence, and suicide. The first research results were published in 1998, followed by more than 70 other publications through 2015. They showed that childhood trauma was very common, even in employed white middle-class, college-educated people with great health insurance, there was a direct link between childhood trauma and adult onset of chronic disease, as well as depression, suicide, being violent, and a victim of violence. More types of trauma increased the risk of health, social and emotional problems. People usually experience more than one type of trauma. Rarely is it only sexual abuse or only verbal abuse. The ACEs framework is important because it clearly maps out how traumas sustained in childhood leave lasting imprints on our bodies and minds. The ACEs shows that what happens in childhood, especially when it was a highly negative experience, stays with us for a lifetime. As a result, the CDC made what is known as the Adverse Childhood Experiences Test, aka ACEs, which mental health professionals use to assess the level of trauma in their clients' lives. The ACEs questionnaire includes 10 questions that cover various types of childhood trauma, including physical, verbal, and sexual abuse, as well as experiences of witnessing such abuse or of having an incarcerated family member. Every yes answer to the 10 questions results in one point. Research has shown that the higher the score, the greater the chances of negative life outcomes, like increased risk of developing chronic diseases, higher rates of substance abuse, as well as suicide. We will add links to the study in the questionnaire for you to check out. 
It's important to realise, however, that the ACEs framework does not take into account the full range of traumas out there, including emotional and spiritual ones, which result from consistently denying or repressing the needs of the authentic self that so many of us have experienced, or forms of social or racial trauma, prejudice, oppression, etc. And there are forms of hidden or subtle trauma, but the ACEs framework is a good place to start so you can get a picture for yourself of how the trauma you've endured can have physical and emotional repercussions in adulthood. Allah created pain to send us a signal that there is something that is wrong, that needs fixing, right? So when I have a toothache, it actually means, well, there is a problem going on, you need to fix that right? The same with any physical pain. And the same happens with emotional and psychological pain. Mm -hmm. But if we are in these environments, we are feeling a lot of pain. We don't know what to do with that. We are kids, right? So to take away the pain, what do we do? We try to be good children. We try to please our parents. We do everything that we can in order to be safe, right? But then eventually we realize that no matter what we did, the pain didn't go away. What does a child have to do to deal with a trauma that has no solution. No matter what you do, the pain is always going to be there. So what happens is that the brain, the survival brain, takes over. right? The primitive part of the brain takes over. The priority becomes to not get hurt. This is survival mode. This is the basic mode. right? I have to protect myself to not get hurt. And then once that is fulfilled, to get those emotional needs met. Because I'm a human being. Allah wired me to have my emotional needs met, right? So the first priority is to not get hurt, survival mode. And this kind of trumps all the other priorities that we've just listed, mm -hmm. right? And then once I'm not hurt, I have to get those needs met. And the problem is it sets me up for trying to get those needs, but not in a healthy way. It manifests itself in, in relationship problems like fakes, fake intimacy and addiction, like numbing behaviors, yeah. and so on. And we'll get into the details of these as we go along. Now that we're talking about the brain, let's just go into what happens in our brains to try and understand what happens in the survival brain, the survival mode, and the fight, flight, or freeze response. Okay, Because once we actually understand that, it gives us a model whereby we understand a lot of what is happening nowadays in our lives. So... When we have a stress, stressful event that is going on, or our body is, uh, our body and minds are anticipating that there is something important coming up. So let's say there's a major event coming, like a wedding, or I'm having a major exam coming up, or I'm preparing for a presentation, you know, a major work meeting that's happening, whatever it is. We talk about healthy stress, right? So we have a normal response to stress. Yeah. The limbic system, which is part of the survival brain, it senses this threat. And what happens is that the body responds by having this state of heightened emotional slash arousal state, right? We sense a threat and we have specific memories that come up in response to particular sounds, particular images, particular sensations that are connected to a threat, quote unquote, right? A threat doesn't have to be an actual threat. It's just something that is a little bit stressful, all right? Um... What happens is that we respond to specific quote-unquote triggers, right? This is something that is stressful to me, right? My body is going to start producing cortisol, which is a stress hormone, and this gives me a burst of energy, 
right, to fight or flight, my memory is going to be heightened, right? I have less sensitivity to pain. There's a lot of adrenaline circulating in my body, right? And the results of adrenaline are similar to cortisol. Now, this stressful, this stress response is healthy when it comes up, you know, um, temporarily to help me. It gives me a boost of energy, a boost of memory to, to do what I have to do, particularly with stresses where I have to, to show up or to even run away when I have to run away because there's danger coming. Now, contrast that with complex trauma because this stress response is not happening temporarily. It's actually taking place over prolonged periods of time. It becomes what is known as toxic stress, right? It's a chronic thing. The body becomes addicted to adrenaline, right? And so we have a lot of adrenaline, a lot of cortisol that is being released constantly over long periods of time. This becomes detrimental to my body. My cognitive performance starts to decline, right? I have difficulty focusing. I have difficulty doing in-depth thinking. I start having mental health problems, sleeping problems. My brain starts to have chemical imbalances like different levels of serotonin, dopamine, right? They're all messed up. So people start having depression and anxiety, for example. What about the physical health? My thyroid gland, which is responsible for my metabolism in general, starts to be suppressed. All right, People start having blood sugar problems. The bone density even starts decreasing because of stress, because of cortisol. The muscle tissue starts to decrease. Blood pressure increases. We start having heart disease. Immunity and inflammatory responses in the body become lowered, right? You know, as we know, that chronic stress leads to lower uh, immunity, higher chance of getting disease. This explains it, right? Wound healing, even wound healing becomes slowed. And how is all of that tied to my memory? Now we know that there are two kinds of memory. There is something called implicit memory and explicit memory. So implicit memory means my, my emotional memory, so things that are stored in my body, particular emotions that I remember, versus the explicit memory, which is the detailed memory, right? The rational part, right? Sometimes we, we can be triggered by particular events. We feel a certain way, but we don't know why, right? Because the implicit and the explicit have been separated. I have that implicit memory, but I don't know the details of it right? Some people start having gaps in their memories. And so what I'm trying to say here is the limbic system, the one that's involved in the stress response, the survival brain, is the one that is triggered, right? It's it's overactive. It's taking over most of the time, right? It's triggered more easily by stress and danger. And it's very important to know that there is a doing part of my brain and there's a thinking part of my brain. The thinking part is the prefrontal cortex, which is at the at the forefront of my brain. It's the one that's responsible for making rational decisions, executive functioning, etc. When I'm under stress, that part of the brain shuts down. And what takes over is my survival brain or the limbic system. Okay, that's the doing part of the brain. And that's the one that takes over. When we are triggered emotionally, we feel and act as if we are back in the time of danger. It's danger. That's interpreted by my body, by my brain, as danger, as threat. Even though that that particular event might not actually be stressful or dangerous anyway, right? But we go back to that point in time when we felt like we were that powerless little kid who felt unsafe, who felt that he or she was walking on eggshells, right? As a result, what happens in my brain? Fight, flight, or freeze. 
That's the response that we're talking about because we have to survive. So, Adam, let's walk the listeners through the fight, flight, or freeze response. Uh, okay, so let's start off with uh, the the fight response, and I just want to say about these, um, having read through these and and talked about them and researched them, um, we can. It's not that we do one or the other. We can do different ones at different times depending on the situation, or or, or we can we can react in these three different ways at different times, mm-hmm. depending on what the trigger is. So this is just important to to note. Although they're separate, they they can there there is overlap, and it's not that people experience one and not the other. Right. So if we start with the the fight response, this is where there's a situation that is seemingly threatening or emotionally triggering people who have complex trauma, and it can result in someone becoming uh, angry very quickly and feeling intimidated. Uh, and in their minds, they need to protect themselves, right? So this is the protection mode. And so they'll they'll follow a sort of, I hurt you before you hurt me mentality. Mm-hmm. So before they experience uh, pain, whether it was uh, there and the threat of it was there in the first place, whether it was a real um, uh, pain or just the one that they were anticipating, you know, they, they will react in a way to, oh, I'm going to hurt you before you hurt me. Mm-hmm. And that's quite, that's quite, um, quite toxic subhanallah and it can often result in undesirable outcomes uh, with with the people that are around us and also in this fight survival mode people may even direct at themselves through self-harm so as a result of uh, self-blame and liberation so their thinking will be i must have done something to deserve it i need to punish myself mm-hmm. and um, again, it's that whole like the idea of which we touched on before. You know, we feel a type of way triggered by a situation. We may remember the feeling, but not the detail of what happened, mm-hmm. and so we just react based on whatever it is that we know in that in that moment. And sometimes what we will will opt to assign blame um, because there's just a tendency for human beings to do that, <laughs> assign blame to ourselves. Subhanallah, and that's the tragedy of this. Um, and, and you know people can end up self-harming themselves right and and just to say something that um whenever you see someone who is emotionally triggered and lashing out at people just kind of think that you know now you might be able to say that okay well his survival brain is taking over right right so um yeah. So this kind of gives us an idea about how we behave and how other people behave. Yeah. So now we can we can start looking at people like, okay, now his survival brain is actually taking over. This guy is going through trauma as opposed to me hating him and then fighting fire with fire. Right. I can start putting things in perspective. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's just to, to have compassion for the experience that someone else is having, because more often than not, it's not really to do with us. It's it's more to do with them exactly than anything. So uh, that that itself requires a level of maturity to realize that not everything is about us. Subhanallah. Right, absolutely. So that's the fight response, which is one of the three. The second one is flight. Yeah. So this is all about avoiding pain. So the the thinking here is the minute I feel pain, I'm just going to take off. The, the, the threshold to avoidance decreases with time and it becomes a regular thing. So first it might start with any stress or discomfort and then it becomes um, with any potential signs of danger, even when there's nothing uh, nothing there and we just start reading into the worst case scenario, we'll, we'll preempt our escape 
basically. Right. Um, right. So the, a trigger is followed by a, a very quick nanosecond response that escalates to great intensity. So like going from zero to 100 uh, very quickly. So that's why many of us go like life is going well. Something bad is definitely going to happen soon. Right. There's this thinking that there's anticipation of uh, something going wrong uh, and uh, sabotaging things when they're going smoothly. So mm -hmm. lots of us will run away and push things the way that are actually good for us. So this might be in relationships. This could be in our, our careers. It could be any aspect of life where there's something that's going well, but because of our our uh, our anxiety or the expectation that things will go wrong, uh, we will sabotage those those things in our lives. And again, this makes sense because because the brain is on survival mode. So it's it's anticipating any danger. So the fact that things are going well means that, oh, my God, something so bad is going to happen. So I might as well just end this thing right now. Exactly. Yeah, yeah absolutely. SubhanAllah. Yeah. And then people will, as, a, as, a, as another way of avoiding things, avoiding pain or dealing with difficult emotions, people will distract themselves. So, you know, you might see this show up as uh, workaholism, mm -hmm. uh, addictive behaviors. Uh, people often will use, uh, sorry, escape into fantasies. So they'll use their imagination. They're mm -hmm. daydreaming all the time. Perhaps they are just consuming entertainment um, en masse. So constantly watching Netflix, uh, binging on TV shows and movies, that's that, that, that type of thing. Right. And people will also even isolate themselves physically. So they will retreat into their safe spaces. So that might be in their home, in a bedroom, whatever it might be. And then others around them will hear from them for extended period. And this is not uncommon. This, this does happen. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the whole thing is just basically to avoid any experience that might inflict some type of heart or pain. Right. So that's the flight, which basically we run away, we avoid pain. Yes. Yeah. And the third response is to freeze. So we, we will try to stuff our emotions, uh, disconnect from any emotions that make us feel vulnerable. So make us feel sad, uh, fear, uh, even you know, we will stop ourselves from crying if, if that's how we feel. And as children, many of us split into two, uh, into two um, modes of operation. So there's that mode, which is, you know, these emotions are safe to express and I, I can be comfortable here. So that would be things like joy, happiness, laughter, um, fun, all those sorts of things. And versus those that will make us feel vulnerable uh, or, or afraid in some way. So fear, sadness, um, any of the other emotions that we might associate with being negative. Um, and we, we will we'll hide that actively from people. Another way that, that people will shut down uh, emotionally or try not to feel is basically saying that they don't care. So the things, common phrases would be things like, whatever, who cares? Um, I'm not bothered by that. It doesn't it doesn't matter to me, right. which is a form of shutting down our emotions and not engaging with an experience. Um, others uh, may go through numbing their emotions. So this is where we might use um, substances or uh, other things uh, in an addictive way to escape uh, our reality for a short period uh, and uh, gain relief that way. Right. And in severe cases, um, the brain may protect itself uh, and the person by blocking the memory completely. So you touched on this earlier, uh, so we said there may be gaps in memory. Mm -hmm. um, and if you know people experience that, then it's likely that there's some type of trauma at play. 
Um, and, and it's very common for children who have complex trauma to experience, you know, gaps in memory, feeling a feeling, but not being able to pinpoint where it, where it comes from. Right. Yeah. And we'll talk about dissociation, inshallah, later on as we go along. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and healing from complex trauma allows those memories to start coming back. So, uh, as we said before, the brain stores memories in two parts, the details and the emotions of experiences. So one might not entirely remember the details, mm -hmm. but the emotions are still triggered. So we, we, we don't block those emotions necessarily. We can do things to try and ignore them. So like what we've discussed, but they're, they're always there. Right. So in other words, going into a situation and feeling a panic or an, an anxiety, but really not having any memory of how or where that came from in the first place. Mm -hmm. And that, that's because the, the right hand side of the brain, which is um, uh, responsible for emotions, develops more uh, in response to complex trauma than the left hand side of the brain, which is uh, uh, responsible for those rational details and all those specifics about the event. Right. Um, and I guess the, the, the key in trying to overcome this is to be uh, learn to be guided by careful thinking um, uh, level-headed thinking rather than our emotions, which I know sounds, for many of us, will sound a lot easier than it is to do. And I will admit that and attest to that. Mm -hmm. um, and it's something that does require persistence and uh, effort and love and compassion, um, inshallah. And, you know, we can learn, we can absolutely learn to process and control our emotions. Inshallah. And we'll talk about a lot of practical tips, inshallah, as we go along. Yep. Yeah, inshallah. So um, this basically is the fight, flight, or freeze. Now, a lot of people think that it only applies to like physical threats. Like if I'm in a jungle and a lion comes running towards me, I'm either going to fight back or uh, run away or just freeze in that moment, right? <laughs> but yeah. that's not just the physical response. Now we see that it also applies to the emotional aspect, right? And this is basically what we're talking about here. So maybe you are familiar with these concepts before or maybe this is the first time that you hear it but we encourage you to try and think about how you react to different situations or quote-unquote threats or stressful experiences in your life do you fight do you experience flight or do you freeze and shut down yeah yeah absolutely uh, and you know, learning this this will this will help in the process. If we we can't fix or heal what we're not aware of. Mm -hmm. So once we get the awareness, we can start to uh, make changes. Mm -hmm. uh, it's important before we move on to the next part is the complex trauma affects the development of the brain, and that impact is linked to problems with our behavior, learning, dealing with emotions, mental health, and physical health. Right. Our brain has a tremendous potential to heal itself. Mm -hmm once we work on healing and recovery. And as I said before, this does take time and effort, and we will talk about this in lots of detail uh, in the later episodes. Right, inshallah. And yeah, basically this touches upon the earlier notions of brain plasticity that we have explored um, uh, earlier on in this season. Uh, so our brain, subhanAllah, has this tremendous uh, potential to heal, to rewire. So whatever trauma has done to our brains, there is a chance, inshallah, to rewire those circuits and to heal from them, inshallah. Yep. Inshallah.
the remainder of this episode is going to be directed to learning more about the dynamics that we have had with our parents or our caregivers. And those are the dynamics that brought about a lot of the complex trauma that we have endured, right, or that we experience. So just to kind of put everyone in perspective. So we're all born as human beings. Allah has wired us to emotionally attach and bond with our parents and caregivers, right? This is part of our fitrah. Right. So this means to to bond, to attach to that parent as as babies. And then as we grow up, we learn to relate to them at a deeper level. Right. Mm -hmm. We learn to not wear masks, to be completely open with them. The idea is to feel that we're in a safe world in our childhood and development. And this does not only apply to when we're babies or children or preteens and teens. This carries on in our early adulthood and and even further along, right? All of these stages require healthy attachment with our parents and caregivers, not just the early stages. Right. And so the lack of healthy attachment is going to create trauma. So we have that aspect, which is the, the proper attachment to the parents. The other aspect is not to feel abandoned from that connection, to make sure that that connection is not severed for whatever reason. And um, it starts with our parents and with everyone in our lives. So friends, family, colleagues, etc. Once we, we have our connection severed, our natural need to connect with others, then that also becomes problematic. Mm -hmm. That's where the abandonment issues start coming up. Right. So a lot of us go through the same trauma situations in our lives, and we will talk about trauma bonds and trauma repetition uh, in, in later stages. But this explains why some people who uh, develop traumas are able to heal from them. Right. And are able to to become resilient and and be healthy versus others who have experienced the same trauma end up developing trauma reactions like post-traumatic stress or even addictions and numbing behaviors right and one way to explain this is that people who are resilient and who bounce back yep. have a support network they have connections that they rely on healthy genuine connections where they feel seen and heard right. where they feel that there is no shame that i can be myself i'm not judged i feel that i'm worthy those who are likely to develop addictions and post-traumatic stress and mental health issues as a, as a response to trauma probably do not have those genuine connections right right um and we will touch upon this as we go along inshallah Inshallah. Yeah, and the importance of those can't be understated. So, absolutely. Yeah, it's important that we we bear that in mind as we talk through the rest of this. Um, but if we start off uh, talking about attachment theory, that attachment theory best explains emotion in healthy parenting. So John Bowlby, the originator of attachment theory, says that when a parent recognizes and meets their child's emotional needs, a secure attachment is formed. And this attachment forms the basis for healthy self-esteem, healthy self-image, and general well-being in life. Right. Uh, so these parents, um, as he says, have three essential skills. One, the parent feels an emotional connection to the child. Two, the parent pays attention to the child and sees him or her as a unique and separate person rather than an extension of him or herself or a possession or a burden. And three, Using that emotional connection and paying attention, the parent responds competently to the child's emotional needs. Right. So these skills are powerful tools for helping a child learn about and manage his or her own nature. And when parents are in tune with the unique emotional nature of their children, 
they raise strong, healthy adults. And I think the key word here is unique emotional, or rather phrase, unique emotional nature. Everybody's different. And one of the jobs of parents is to recognize that within their children and be able to respond appropriately. Absolutely. And this is what we're saying when we say like emotionally in tune, meaning that they are able to identify their children's emotions, to have discussions about them, to help them go through whatever emotions they can go through, Mm -hmm. as opposed to neglecting those feelings, you know, ignoring them, not having discussions about them, not having the willingness or the ability to engage in such discussions or to help the child navigate those emotions. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in order to be a good parent, you don't need a qualification. And I, I just want to emphasize this point because I know we've talked a lot about parents and the expectation or how we've just talked about it. Right. But for most people, this is just natural. They will do this naturally and they don't need to be taught this. Um, I mean, I'm not saying no, but we shouldn't learn about these things if we aspire to become parents or perhaps are parents. Right. But most people are entirely capable of being good good enough parents. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think of love and emotions as a tank, there is a minimal amount of parental emotional connection, empathy, and ongoing attention that's needed to fuel a child's growth and development so that they'll grow into an emotionally healthy and connected adult. So less than the minimal amount, and those children will become adults who struggle emotionally, seemingly successful to the outside world, but empty, missing something within that no one can see right 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 Mm -hmm. so that sort of puts it into context um and donald winnicott who's a child psychiatrist psychoanalyst a researcher and writer says in his writings and describes the good enough mother in the way that i've just mentioned above Mm -hmm. uh, a mother who meets or bikes or generally speaking a parent who meets their child's needs in any given moment um and it's important to note two things All parents are guilty of emotionally neglecting their child from time to time. So this is inevitable inevitable being human beings. And if you've ever been around children or you have your own children, you know that it can be trying and testing at times. Children are not always um, easy to deal with. Amen. (laughs) Right? Um, But that's the nature of children, right? They they, they need to be taught these things and they they don't know, uh, not necessarily know manners and etiquettes that's just that's just children mm-hmm. and mostly the moments where perhaps this happens um this doesn't do any significant harm provided that the child is provided for with the minimal amount of connection and comfort and love and all of the other stuff necessary um parents who are emotionally neglectful as a pattern or a pathology do two things mm-hmm. they fail their children in a critical way during a moment of crisis or and or they are chronically tone deaf to their child's emotional needs so the chronic empathic failure and the harm comes from the sum total of all moments where parents are emotionally neglectful so if you were emotionally neglected and you are now a parent you may be you might be starting to realize that you're passing on some of this neglect and the impact of complex trauma to your children right. please realize it's not your fault so it's not this is not an invitation to fall into a spiral um on the contrary this is a an an invitation to um show yourself some compassion and love and acceptance you could only do better what is a part of your awareness so please don't berate yourself 
you have the opportunity to interrupt the pattern and change the future. And life is a, an ongoing learning experience, subhanAllah, and we can only do with what we know. So right. um, please keep listening because we'll be sharing lots of lots of things that we can all do uh, to help with this in the, as the episodes go. Absolutely. Now that we said everything that we talked about, right, the question is, how do these parental interactions contribute to complex trauma? Right. If you want to think about it, it all boils down to an abuse of power or authority. Right. Instead of using our positions of power as parents or caregivers to meet the needs of those who are under our authority, we use it to be selfish or to have everything to go the way that we want it to go, meaning nobody can challenge me. I will do whatever I want and I can get away with it. And that's mm -hmm. that's a very big problem. Right. Um, it's all about them, the parents. It's all about them, right? What makes them comfortable, right? right? And as a result of that, parents don't consistently meet the basic needs of their children. The, the needs of their children are seen as an inconvenience. An inconvenience to whom? To the parents. I mean, to the pleasure yeah. or the fun of the parents or to their, you know, whatever they want to do. So that kind of distorts the whole reality and experience of the child because then the child sees him or herself as an inconvenience, mm -hmm. right? As if my needs do not matter. A lot of us have been consistently told that we are selfish for having needs, Right. It is my fault that my parent is upset, right? We were made to feel that we were bad for having needs, right? Yep. Or my needs anyway are just going to be neglected. So I might as well not even pay attention to that because I'm not important. I'm invisible. Like who cares? No one cares about me. Some people were made to feel guilty and not good enough. And the only way that they could get along with everyone is to actually sacrifice their own needs to meet those of their parents. And how does this develop growing up? We end up sacrificing our own needs with other people mm -hmm. to make sure that they are happy. We actually take responsibility for other people's emotional states. Yeah, right. right? Yeah. And in, in many cases, actually, the children often have to become parents to their own parents, mm. right? So the responsibility or the, the fulfillment of needs actually shifts from the parents to the children. So the children now become responsible as opposed to the parents, right? So if you think about it, sometimes the parents are the needy children and the children themselves are forced to grow beyond their years to actually make peace or sometimes even take care of their parents yeah. emotionally and sometimes even physically, depending on the home environment. Yeah, subhanAllah. In the book, Running on Empty by Junice Webb, she actually details 12 types of parents and how they can inflict uh, neglect upon their children. Um, and there are an infinite number of ways for a parent to fail their child emotionally, and it probably is impossible to go over them all. Mm -hmm. But these 12 categories uh, should cover most types of parents. And parents will often have traits that cross over between categories. So as we talk through these, mm -hmm. Uh, it may you may you may find that your parents uh, display characteristics of more than one uh, group, which is fine and it's expected. Uh, just a reminder: um, no parent is perfect, and nor is any childhood. So I want to emphasize this: this is not a campaign to smear all parents, of course, or any parent. Most parents do their best and are well-meaning. Despite this, some parents do leave their children emotionally neglected or with complex trauma. 
And often the parents were also neglected or experienced complex trauma uh, and were unable to give their children what they never had in the first place. Exactly. So the exercise of going through these uh, categories is not intended to blame or open up old wounds, but rather uh, we're trying to learn how these behaviours may have impacted us so that we can collectively heal from them. Mm -hmm. So feel free to take notes and reflect on what you've experienced as a child and to think about how what we talk through has perhaps affected you, uh, you know, up till this day. All right. So let's start with these 12 categories. Right. Okay. So number one, and this is in no particular order uh, on the list, is the narcissistic parent. Mm -hmm. This is a very, uh, um, it's a word that's used a lot in pop culture, and I think people often misunderstand it and use it inappropriately. Yeah. But um, people with narcissistic qualities believe themselves in some way to be superior to others and they carry themselves with what seems like confidence and a lot of charisma. Mm -hmm. They're very good at charming people and are grandiose. Um, Deep down, these people are highly insecure and they know it. Mm -hmm. So they seek validation from the outside world. And when they don't receive it, they can act up. Mm -hmm. So almost like a child throwing a tantrum. Um, we spoke about this in detail back in season one, episode nine. Mm-hmm. Um, now, deep down, they're emotionally weak and very, very easily hurt. They hold grudges. They blame other people. Uh, they don't take responsibility for their own actions and they will throw tantrums. Mm-hmm. And they have they have a hard time admitting that they are wrong in any situation. They're highly judgmental and can be manipulative even. Right. Now, considering this, as parents, they can demand perfection from their children or at least no embarrassment mm-hmm. when their children make mistakes in public narcissistic parents feel personally humiliated and they will make their children pay so if you think about everything we said everything for a narcissist is about the outside appearance and making sure you know they, they come across as confident and charming and all of this right. and many of these parents will actually see their children as an extension of themselves so they don't really consider the child's feelings. So the child is basically just an extension of them reflected in the world. What they do reflects badly or goodly on the parents. So uh, it's this sort of enmeshment. The child isn't an individual. Um, and they put their own feelings before their children. So children who try to express their needs are often labelled as selfish and or inconsiderate. Many of these parents lack the ability to imagine or care about what their children are actually feeling. They have no empathy. Narcissists are typically characterized by having no empathy. I just want to put that in there if you don't know anything about narcissists. Um, Among siblings, narcissistic parents can often have differing relationships with their children based on how the children make them feel. Mm -hmm. So, for example, a child who makes the parent look good socially might be praised above the other kids. And this is what we talked about before, this conditional love, whereby the parent showers the child with affection as long as the child performs to a certain standard. Right. As opposed to unconditional love. I love you no matter what. Right, exactly. Regardless of what you do. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so uh, we can already start to see, just within what we've talked about, so much of what we've already discussed Mm -hmm. showing up within this type of parent and how it might manifest in those daily interactions. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's as far as the narcissistic narcissistic parent. The second category is that of the authoritarian parent. Dr. Diana Baumrind was the first to identify the authoritarian parent and described this parenting style as 
you know, parents who are rule-bound, restrictive, and punitive, raising their children on inflexible and unbending demands, quote-unquote. Basically, those parents require a lot of their children. They expect them to hear and obey all rules without questioning, right? They don't consider it necessary to provide their children with any explanations of their rules, and non-adherence is punished very harshly. It has to be my way. It has to go my way, this way or no way, right? right? Sometimes even the punishment is actually physical abuse. Uh, These parents don't have a concern for how their children feel, right? That's irrelevant to them. The child should comply with the parents' wishes at all times, no questions asked whatsoever. The individual needs of their children, their temperaments, the feelings, that is all not even considered, right? Now, as a rule, authoritarian parents are emotionally neglectful, right? Not all of them are abusive, but there is a high likelihood that these parents would be abusive, especially if their conditions or their rules are not met. Mm -hmm. The more that you adhere to these rules, the more love that you feel in return. The less that you adhere to these rules, the less love that you feel. Again, conditional love. Right. My obedience becomes equated to love, right? My obedience means my parents are going to love me. When I don't obey my parents, the parents are not going to love me. Right. And as a result, I will. F- the parents will feel disrespected and rejected, and I will feel rejected in return. So, if if children have had enough and they start rebelling against the parents, the parents are going to feel a lack of love, right? And they are going to start feeling angry, enraged, and disrespectful, right? So it's it, it's going to become fighting fire with fire. Right, exactly. And and the problem is a lot of these children start feeling guilty for having needs of their own, and they will start sacrificing those needs in order to please their parents. And as a result, they're sent a message that tells them that your own legitimate and healthy needs have to be put on the side in order to fulfill your parents' needs uh, to feel loved and appreciated. So it's all about your parents. You don't matter. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the children will internalize that they're not important, that their feelings and needs should be kept to themselves. Right. And as a result, what happens is that we start feeling disconnected from ourselves and it can lead to so many mental health conditions that we have described earlier. Right. And we can expect that adults who grow up uh, after having lived through these experiences as children, they are going to struggle with a lot of self-blame, a lot of shame, a lot of feelings of inadequacy, and a lot of self-directed anger, right? There's this deep-seated tendency to blame themselves when things go wrong. And they can be very harsh on themselves when they make a mistake. Why? Because the parental voice inside of their mind is alive and well, mm-hmm. right? It's being replicated every single day. And the problem is some of those adults who grew up as children of authoritarian parents will grow up to become authoritarian parents themselves, right? That's not a rule, but, you know, some of them do actually end up like that. They can be overly pedantic, very structured, very inflexible, you know, resistant to, so to speak, like growing outside the lines, quote unquote, you know. How do children usually heal from this? It's by being present with others who actually affirm that you are important, that your feelings matter, right? And this is going to take a long time of shedding shame and realizing that you are internally valid and worthy. But then that narrative, that lifelong narrative starts to shift, inshallah, right? From the fact that you're not important, your feelings don't matter, to no, I am important, I'm worthy, I'm lovable, my feelings matter, my needs are important, Mm -hmm. right? And we'll talk about this, inshallah, as we go along. So the next 
parent type is the permissive parent. So these are happy-go-lucky parents. They're the polar opposite to the authoritarian parents we've just talked about. Yeah. These parents opt for the path of least resistance. So at best, they want their kids to be happy, and at worst, they do not want to do the work of parenting. Yeah. So these parents don't provide their children with structures, limits, or a strong adult presence during the teenage years against which they can actually rebel. Um, parenting requires energy, as any parent will tell you. Right. And these parents find it easier to let things be as they are, resulting in negative consequences for their children. So these parents can be perceived as loving by their children due to the lack of conflict that will typically arise between them. These parents themselves struggle with conflict and self-discipline, so they do everything they can to avoid it right. uh, with their children. Uh, the, the adult children of these parenting styles end up struggling to discipline themselves later in life, though. So they can struggle to follow rules and um, boundaries that might be set by society, mm-hmm. having never had to live by them in the first place at home. Um, when they go out in the real world, they'll often uh, have poor outcomes and negative experiences. So things like being at work, in school, uh, maybe being getting into trouble with the law, all of that sort of thing. Teenagers need a strong parental figure to moderate their decision-making with rules and consequences. So teenagers, as we're aware, (laughs) can be impulsive and too much freedom is detrimental as they're trying to figure out and forge their own identities away from their parents. So a permissive parent won't won't provide the boundaries that are necessary for a teenager to really uh, develop an understanding of right and wrong boundaries, etc. And also with these types of parents, a child's sense of worth and capability can also be impacted negatively. So without enough well-rounded feedback from a parent, a child might not realize their true potential and capability in life. So for example, achieving lower grades in school than they might be capable of or healthy risk-taking. In fact, children may begin to believe that they're only capable of what they are achieving alone without the support and guidance of an experienced adult. Exactly. Many permissive parents were brought up by permissive parents, so they don't realise what they're doing or even the consequences of it. Right, absolutely. So yeah, the permissive parents are exactly the polar opposite to the authoritarian ones. Yep. And now uh, we have a different example of parents, which are the parents who are bereaved. Either they have been divorced or widowed, so they're trying to cope with the divorce or death uh, that they have experienced, right? So... Um, Typically, in this case, the parent as well as the child are grieving, right? And the bereavement can leave the children in these families feeling emotionally neglected, Mm -hmm. right? The loss that has happened is not openly discussed. It has become a taboo topic quite frequently. And um, the children, as a result, they don't bring up this topic because they are afraid of causing pain to the parent. Sometimes if the parent is going through divorce, they might actually start using the other parent as a scapegoat for their own problems. So as a result, they deprive their child of developing happy moments or, you know, um, having valuable learning moments or opportunities to get to know themselves much better and to set healthy boundaries and rules. And sometimes the parents even rush themselves and rush their children through the grieving process and they don't allow the children the space or the time to express and feel their feelings. And as we know, the feelings that are stuffed, not allowed to to be um, processed, they're going to explode and come back later in life. Now, they mean well because they care about their kids. They don't want them to experience the pain. But this all comes from their own feeling of discomfort when it comes to 
dealing with these emotions, right? right? Yep. And, you know, just after that period of grieving, whether the loss or the event that has happened, life just goes back to normal. Everything is quote unquote fine, mm-hmm. right? No acknowledgement of the loss, no conversations, no feelings of emotions whatsoever. And so what children, what they do is they start hiding their emotional needs from their parents. Right. They, they start repressing the genuine, authentic and healthy emotional needs. And they can become, they can become withdrawn, isolated, shut down from themselves. And that is the only way they know how to cope, right? Because I don't know how to communicate. I don't know how to express. I don't know how to feel. And as a result, when they grow up, they start struggling as adults and they feel like there is something that is wrong with me, but I can't really know. I can't pinpoint that particular thing. Mm -hmm. Right? They feel angry at their parents and their siblings who were with them in their home, but they were not able to communicate with them. They were closed off emotionally. They were not available. And they weren't able to grieve that loss, to grieve that shock. Yeah. And so that is very important to realize. Yeah. So that that's the bereaved parent. The next parent type um, is the addicted parent. So addicted parents are not all the same. On one end of the spectrum, there's the parents who are lost to their addiction. And children of these parents are emotionally neglected, abused, and traumatized. Um, there's There's no question of that mm-hmm. well, we are interested in talking about specifically those parents who are might be called functional addicts so these are parents who um quite often are considered loving and people might not um view them as having addiction problems but these parents have two faces one of the loving present parent and the other of the addicted parent and children of these parents can struggle to know which parent they can expect when they get home from school, for example, or when they're just at home playing or whatever. Right. And w- when these parents are engaged in their addictive behaviours, they can be out of their sober character. So they can be mean, aggressive, abusive, hurtful, inappropriate, and, and so on. And this unpredictability in the parents' behaviour can leave the children feeling anxious, insecure, and worried. Essentially, what we've said, uh, fundamentally unsafe. So these children are at a much higher risk of developing anxiety disorders and addictions in adulthood the lack of consistency in parenting creates anxiety especially when the addicted parents act up in their intoxicated state Mm -hmm. and furthermore parents whilst engaged in their addiction can fail to relate to their child as he or she really is or respond appropriately to their emotions if they're caught up in their addiction and they're intoxicated they don't see normally what they would see if they were sober so a child might have a significant event, something they want to talk about. The parents are not even present. They're just away in another land. Um, and they can quite often project their own negative self-view onto their children, passing on negative traits. Right. And children have no way of knowing that this is happening. And will do, of course, what? Internalize all of the words of their parents, leading to chronic low self-esteem, inadequacy, and the list just goes on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then the sixth type of parent is the depressed parent, right? The parent who lacks the energy, the enthusiasm to parent their kids. They inevitably emotionally neglect their children. Obviously, they don't intend to do that, right? But they are dealing with their own mental health issues. They can be disengaged. They seem disinterested. They're caught up in their own pain and misery that they have no time to be there for their children. Mm -hmm. So they can be very irritable and miserable when they're around their family members. Just like Adam was saying with the addicted parent, for example, with the depressed parent, it's the same because children 
children don't know how to get the positive attention from their parents. They feel invisible. Um, my good behavior is not going to be even noticed or rewarded, but the bad behavior might actually get them some attention, mm. right? So what happens is that some kids will resort to misbehaving because they want to grab the attention of their parents right. because the parents are otherwise disengaged. So the only way that I can attract your attention is to do something bad. Exactly. Right. Um, and so they fear that the attention that they get from their parents is actually short lived and they need to act up or appear to be in pain so that they can receive attention, mm. right? And these kinds of parenting are well-documented and the effects of them are well-documented. So um, the problem is that children from these households, they're more likely to be depressed, to be perceived as troublemakers, to engage in addictive or dangerous behaviors. So for anyone who's uh, dealing with someone who's delinquent, let's say, or struggling with addiction or, or mental health issues, avoid the blame game and start mm -hmm. realizing that all of this comes from somewhere. Yeah. Right. Their, their complex trauma can be traced back to a lot of things that have happened before. Yeah. Uh, so the seventh parent parental type, uh, the workaholic parent. So these parents are consumed by their careers to such an extent that they are emotionally absent from their children's lives. And these children are often seen as privileged since their parents typically earn lots of money and have nice things, so a big house, lots of uh, branded clothes, uh, gadgets, holidays, all of that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And as a result, few people have sympathy for these children as they're seen as being privileged. Okay. Uh, these parents repeatedly put their work before their children, sending the message to their kids that their needs are not important. So they give them lots of things, they have no lack of need from a material perspective mm -hmm. and the parent considers that to be enough but time touch attention love are all absent and being absent from their lives tells their children that their lives don't matter so these kids can be seen struggling with low self-esteem inadequacy self-blame um, and they can even as the the previous parental type the, these children can often result to misbehavior just to get attention from their parents for themselves right yeah absolutely and then i mean not all workaholic parents uh tend to be rich and provide their children with what they you know like gadgets and clothes and stuff and nice things um a lot of people are struggling to make their ends meet and they have to yeah. sometimes like work over time and so in any in any case a lot of the children feel like they're they're not seen they're not as if their needs are not important so this is another thing to kind of take into account right yeah yeah, that's, yeah absolutely the other example is when families are dealing with a sick uh, family member or a member who has special needs, right? So in these households, the needs of the healthy child are kind of neglected to take care of the family member who is sick or who has special needs, right? And so the children don't get the freedom to be themselves and they're often expected to help support the parents to manage the difficult situation with the other family member who is being taken care of. Mm. And children sometimes feel that the home environment is almost like a constant crisis zone, right? Where, um, you know, sometimes we there are urgent things that are happening, so the children might be left to have dinner alone while the parents are in the hospital or in the or at an institution or whatever school events might sometimes be unattended by the parents my achievements are sometimes not acknowledged they don't even know um, that i got you know the highest grade or i won a prize or so on and so forth right my accomplishments are not celebrated yeah so so and, and the thing is that parents actually look at their 
healthy children, quote the healthy ones, quote unquote, and they think that they are coping uh, better than they actually are, right? And and studies have actually shown that there's a disparity between what the parents perceive and what the children are actually coping and how they actually feel. And and this shows that parents actually minimize the children's distress and they expect maturity levels from their kids that the kids are incapable of cultivating. Right. They expect them to grow beyond their years. Mm -hmm. And so eventually those kids, what happens is that they reach a breaking point and they go from behaving very well to becoming unlike their quote unquote usual self in the eyes of their parents. And so they write because they carry a lot of anger, a lot of rage, a lot of resentment, a lot of, again, guilt for feeling and having emotional needs that were unmet. And sometimes parents make, make the mistake of dismissing their children's feelings altogether and that further exacerbates the problem that my feelings don't matter as kids, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's a, there's a common theme, no matter the context, it's right. similar messages that are being sent, right? As yeah. you, as we all uh, realize as we keep going through these. But the next parental type is the achievement or perfection focused parent. And these parents are likely to say to a child who scored A on all tests, Next time I expect A pluses, oh some of God. us might be. Yeah, mm-hmm. some home. of us might have heard this, it's particularly home. coming from a Muslim background. Oh, yeah, subhanAllah. Um, these parents are seldom satisfied with the achievements of their children, nothing is good enough for them. And the emotional neglect takes place when the parent projects their own aspirations on their children and pressure the kids to achieve those. Yeah. The motivations for these parents being as they are, are varied. So they, they may want better for their children. Um, some of them are just perfectionistic. Um, some of them are living their own life through their children. Um, and some of them are just basically repeating a, a family pattern mm-hmm. of, of, or of high achievement or high expectations. Right. And these parents will focus on how they feel about their child's performance and completely neglect the needs of the child. Right. And these parents can send a message that says, be good so that you can be successful which will lead often these kids to deny themselves in their feelings. Mm-hmm. So when parents send a message to their children that their feelings don't matter, a deeply personal part of them is being denied. That part of the child becomes the elephant in the room. No one wants to see or hear it, but it's it's, it's the essence of a child. Right. Most children learn to survive in these families by participating in the denial and pretending that their emotional self doesn't exist. And I'd probably say that this happens across all these different parental types in some way Mm -hmm. and this leads them to be entirely disconnected from themselves and to struggle to love themselves have compassion um see their own uh, worth or connect with others amen 100% the 10th type is the sociopathic parent so basically these parents lack empathy they do not feel remorse or guilt for the bad things that they do And this basically enables them to do pretty much everything or anything without feeling bad for any negative consequences that others may have to endure because of their behaviors, right? Right. So a lot of these relationships, they go into relationships wanting to control other people, right? If they succeed at controlling you, they will appear to love you and like you. And if they cannot, then they will despise you. If they cannot control you, then they will hate you. Yeah. They are not afraid to use underhanded techniques to hurt people who they cannot control or do not like, right? So, for example, they resort to lies, manipulation, blaming, shaming, and even gaslighting. And for those of us who don't know what gaslighting is, it's basically when I manipulate someone else, 
to an extent that they start to question their own sanity, to question their mm-hmm. thoughts and memories and the events that occur around them. They don't trust their reality anymore. So I start gaining control over those people, right? And this is basically what happens here. And if one of the parents or both are sociopaths, then the children are going to struggle so much as we can imagine, mm-hmm. right? They know yep. that the, something is going on that is wrong, but we cannot really know what the heck is happening, right? Um, and again, children who do not behave the way that their parents want them to, then they're going to be punished in so many ways that are so harmful emotionally and even physically, right? Um, because the parents cannot feel the, the, the pain, uh, the empathy, so they don't know how to connect with the children's remorse or to show them mercy when they apologize for their mistakes, mm. right? There's a lot of mind games going on, a lot of manipulation, a lot of unpredictability, right? The family situations are very volatile. Again, I'm walking on eggshells. I don't feel safe. I don't know when my parents are going to explode. Imagine right. growing up in that environment. I mean, what, what that does to you emotionally and mm. psychologically, Right. So there's a lot of guilt being carried around for the poor relationship that they have with their parents. And because of that toxic dynamic, these uh, these children may choose to keep a healthy distance from their parents, which is expected because, again, they want to protect themselves. And unfortunately, parents will use that against their children by guilting them. To, to get to get them to do certain things or to blame them or to engage in more mind games and manipulation and even use the religion card. Right. And unfortunately, I've seen this very commonly used in our Muslim communities. They use the religion card right and left. Allah ordered you to obey me, then you have to do X, Y, and Z. Right. Right. And that is that is that is abused in so many different ways. Yeah. Right. And it's very important for us to kind of see those parents for who they are, what they are, and to actually shed the guilt that they feel because a lot of the times we are guilted into feeling specific ways that are not even realistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and sometimes we need to protect ourselves from these toxic environments and toxic relationships. Uh, and that is more important than actually keeping that abusive relationship, even if it's with a parent, right? Uh, if that is the case that we're talking about. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And I've actually uh, seen uh, people ask this question of Shiyukh uh, that, you know, what, what should I do if my parental relationship is, or my relationship with my parent is abusive? And the, the Sheikh says you have to, you have to protect to protect yourself to protect yourself yeah that yeah. comes first and even comes. if you maintain like a minimal level of connection just to say okay well i'm still connected with my but i don't i put boundaries i don't allow them to manipulate me anymore yeah yeah subhanallah and then the tragedy is that people um you know may still feel incredible amounts of guilt because it's their parent of course you know they're supposed to have a loving relationship so it's Absolutely. it's it's very difficult yeah then the 11th parental type um, is one that we've touched on before, but this is where the roles become reversed. So the child becomes the parent. Mm-hmm. And, and in this situation, the, this type of parent allows uh, or even encourages or expects, maybe even forces a child to behave as a parent. The child can be forced to parent um, themselves as well as their other siblings and even perhaps look after the parent. Uh, in the majority of these cases, these families come under some sort of extreme hardship that forces the child to mature beyond the years. So things like bereavement, divorce, separation, sickness, addiction, 
financial difficulty and many other situations. Right. In all scenarios, the parent is not able to perform all their parental obligations and then as a result expects one child or multiple children, depending on how many are at home, to compensate for their lack, which is unfair because these children aren't, they haven't, they've not matured to the level to be able to take on that type of responsibility. Right. And so as a result, these children miss out on key childhood events and moments and engagements, interactions that they should be having with their parents um, because they're too busy performing the role of an adult. Mm-hmm. They, like other children who experience uh, emotional neglect and complex trauma, will struggle to know themselves, to how to value their emotions, recognize them, and will struggle to manage difficult experiences. It's entirely possible for parents or families to have significant hardships to be attuned to their child's emotional reality. So I don't want to make this a, this is not a general rule of thumb. Mm-hmm. Um, so not all homes with a hardship will result in emotionally neglected children, but it's, it's just, there's a potential for it to happen. Of course. It's probably what we're seeing here. Yeah, absolutely. And then another category is uh, the category of parents who are well-meaning, but they are themselves emotionally neglected, right? And this is Mm -hmm. probably the largest subset of parents who would be associated with emotional neglect or maybe even complex trauma. So loving a child and being emotionally attuned to them, these are two different things. Right. You can love your kids, but not be attuned to their emotions. Mm-hmm. Right. In order to be in tune with a child, a person must have must be in tune with themselves and they have to have a level of emotional intelligence. So they must be willing to put in the effort and the energy that are necessary to get to know their kids, to spend time with their kids, to be vulnerable and open with their kids, depending on their developmental level. Yep. Right. To encourage transparency, to go into the children's world, to learn, to engage with them right it may you know that's all part of emotional attunement and that also means to recognize how the children feel why they feel what they feel and to address their feelings in healthy ways Mm -hmm. right now for parents who lack that emotional attunement that they don't even have themselves they cannot really offer that to people who are around them particularly their own kids so those those parents have the best intentions and they want to love their kids but they don't really know how to do that in the best ways so they still end up failing their kids they just don't know how to give their kids what they need mm-hmm. right a feeling that is something is missing i'm not being good enough right and this gets expressed or this gets reflected in the kids because the parents are not emotionally engaged so how do we deal with that it's very important for parents to learn about emotional attunement to read self-help books to see therapists or counselors to help them through that and to help their children as well for example yeah and and so these are basically the 12 kinds of parents and we can see that there are overlaps between them and if we look at the book by nicole lepera how to do the work there are other examples that are given so adam would you like to tell us about these yeah yeah absolutely so other examples include parents who deny the reality of their kids so children may come and complain about um, an experience they have had or maybe be sharing something and the parents just dismiss it uh, don't believe it or provide sort of excuses for whatever might be happening they explain away the event and basically this uh, teaches the child to ignore their own intuition their gut feelings um, it teaches them not to trust themselves and their judgments because the parent essentially isn't doing that right. themselves uh, and they can learn to basically ignore their realities mm-hmm. um, the other example is parents who don't see or hear you and there's this feeling of invisibility so this again it sort of ties in with what we've already talked about across the other 12 parent types right 
parents who vicariously live through you, um, they mould you and they shape you. So this is like the parents we talked about with the, the um, authoritarian parents, perhaps who have very specific desire for kids to be a certain way, um, or even the uh, the goal oriented parents who want their children to be all that they never were. You know these types of sentiments. Mm. Hello, Muslim parents who want all their kids to be doctors or engineers or a failure otherwise. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. So there's this projection of their own wants and needs on upon their kids. Um, very common amongst Muslim parents, uh, as we all know. Uh, and this can result in children growing up to be indecisive or procrastinating uh, or even having an obsession with the need to succeed. And I've seen this um very much so amongst people, mm-hmm. uh, amongst Muslims. Um, other parent types are those that lack boundaries and cross lines. So we did touch on this before. There's no privacy. Uh, their personal space or private space is violated. And there's an emotional incest. So parents perhaps sharing too much with children or things that might be inappropriate. Right. That is beyond kind of the developmental level of the kid or like sharing things that the kid is going to go crazy with because they don't know what to do with them. Like a parent struggling with mental health issues or addictions or even suicidal thoughts and then dumping all of that emotionally on the kid. And the kid is just stunted because they're like, what the hell am I supposed to do with this? What do I do? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's exactly good examples. Other parents uh, are overly focused on appearances, so they obsess about physicalities of their children and how pretty they are, or they obsess about how they themselves look and they model that to their kids. Uh, And there's a difference between um, at home and and outside. So at home, uh, the environment might be quite toxic, hostile, there may be a lot of yelling, arguing, but outside of the house, um, butter would not melt. Uh, everything everything seems to be amazing great mm-hmm. there's this image of the perfect family mm-hmm. uh, and ch- children learn to adapt based on you know where they are basically so the, you know there's this there's this false you know sort of do dimensional reality here for these these kids right. and the other parent types um perhaps are those that can't regulate their own emotions so they experience intention emotions and they don't know what to do with them. Mm-hmm. So we talked about this in respect to the children that experience complex trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, but these are parents perhaps who themselves have complex trauma. So there might be a lot of screaming, slamming of doors, throwing things, um, uh, beating up perhaps, withdrawal, silent treatment, um, being shut down, all of these types of things. So basically like the fight, flight or freeze is happening exactly. all the time with the parents. So they're either fighting, hitting, shouting, blah, 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 or they're f- fleeing, you know, running away. Yeah. So they're withdrawing and leaving or they're shutting down completely. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And obviously this is then transferred onto the kids. They don't know what to expect. There's so much unpredictability. They then don't know how to regulate themselves or build emotional resilience. Um, so, I mean, by now you will see that there's so many trends and similarities between the different parent groups. And as we said before, the context might be different, but essentially the neglect is the same across all. Right. Yeah. And now this, uh, things are starting to kind of make sense for us to understand, okay, now this is where complex trauma is actually coming from, right? So if we were to ask this question after presenting all of these 
examples. What do these different parenting types have in common regardless? So you may have found um, some similarities with your own parents and different uh, parenting groups. Others may not have resonated with you and that's fine. But eventually, what are the messages that the kids have received growing up in these environments? If I express my emotions and feelings, I'm not even allowed to do that. Or if I do that, they will go unnoticed. Mm. So it's not safe for me. This environment is not safe for me. I am walking on eggshells at home, right? Um, yep. Another thing that we feel is that my feelings are not recognized, right? Uh, I don't even recognize my feelings anymore or my needs. And I am being shamed for having those emotions or those needs, right? Which means in the mind of the child, that is going to be equated to my feelings don't matter, which to a child also means I don't matter. I don't exist. Right. Right. So they grow up being out of tune with their emotional needs. Mm -hmm. And as a result, a lot of us had to misbehave or to do something reckless or to act out or to be quote unquote bad in order to attract the attention of the parents. But unfortunately, that comes with consequences, which causes for further hurt and further rifts. Or some of us were like, you know what, just not. I'm not going to even bother anymore. It's not worth it, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a whole different thing altogether. So as a result, the conclusion is my feelings and behaviors, my entire existence does not matter. And this leads to a lot of pain and hurt. After pain and hurt, the, the, the extra layer that comes after that, as we've seen earlier in this season, is anger. So underneath anger is always pain and hurt. So we are going to be angry. And then as a result, we're going to put on this layer of what? false selves or the masks in order to hide our inner shame so we become that rebel or that protector or that angry one or that fake that loner that nice person that performer that perfectionist mm. that clown who makes everyone laugh that victim that caretaker that sarcastic person that pleaser the show-off the self-righteous one the critic and so on these are all different masks that we put on to move on through life mm -hmm. and and then as a result we end up dealing with all of these problems and all of these mental health issues or addictions or relationship problems right. and we recycle those to the next generations recognizing all of this answers so many questions for us as to why we felt specific ways or acted in specific ways as, as kids, as uh, teenagers, or even now as adults. We have to know these things to begin to understand our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, and to be able to engage in the quote-unquote reparenting process to heal our wounds. Mm -hmm. Now, we, as we said before, we acknowledge that this can be triggering. It might be triggering for you. So please give yourself a break and process it in increments. Process this with your counselor or therapist if you have one or someone you, is, who is a mentor to you, or your uh, general sort of support system, don't feel pressured to process any of this alone, and maybe just consider it an, ex an intellectual exercise for the time being. Whatever it is that makes you comfortable, whenever you're ready, it's just baby steps. So now that we have discussed the origins of complex trauma, in the next two episodes, we are going to cover the effects and the characteristics of complex trauma and how that manifests in our lives as far as our thoughts, our emotions, our behaviors, as well as our relationships. Mm -hmm. 
Understanding all of this is very eye-opening so that we can then talk about practical work of healing, inshallah. Inshallah. And with this, we have come to the end of today's episode. We hope that you have enjoyed it, that you've considered it eye-opening. And um, again, please process it in increments. You may want to listen to it more than one time. You want to want take breaks, take notes, process this through journaling, for example, talking to a counselor or therapist, or even reach out to us. We are available on Straight Struggle, the Discord platform, or through email awaybeyondtherainbow at gmail.com. Yeah. Uh, Adam, thank you for joining me today. And we will, uh, inshallah, continue this journey on understanding complex trauma in the next three episodes, inshallah. This has been Adam and Wahid Jensen in A Way Beyond the Rainbow. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh.